God willing. <clears throat> Our Lord, every word you speak, we need. We need to hear, we need to heed, we need to treasure those words in our heart, we need to do them. In this section, you speak right into our situation and right into our culture. And not only help us, our Father, to see the truth, but help us to be gripped by it so that the lost here are converted and the saved here are empowered and motivated to cling to Christ totally and to preach Christ boldly. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we hear two questions a lot these days. We hear, why are blank leaving the church? Why are young people leaving the church? Why are millennials leaving the church? Why are black people leaving the church? Why are white people? Why are middle class leaving the church? And many answers are always sought. They're usually, well, it's the music. You know, the music's too modern. Or sometimes you actually hear the music is too uh, traditional. You hear both, actually. But it's the music. The sermons are too long. The sermons are too doctrinal. The sermons are too dense. And the assumption is that if we just locate the thing that's sending them away and change that, they'll come back. Because by all, at all costs, we've got to bring them back. They've left. It's our fault. We've got to bring them back. Another question, seemingly unrelated, but we'll see not so much that you hear a lot today, is uh, why do so many people reject Christ? Why do so many people reject the gospel? Were they preached too wrong? Were, were they told the gospel with the wrong method, uh, with the wrong tone, with the wrong attitude, in the wrong way? Do they lack information? Maybe they weren't presented with evidence and a, and a reasoned case with archaeological and philosophical proofs. And if that were just done, well, then they wouldn't reject Christ. So whatever was wrong in that, we've got to change that. And if we change that, well, then they'll accept Christ after we've changed things and changed how we present Christ and maybe changed the Christ that we present. Well, what I'd like to show you is that those two questions really aren't unrelated. They're very related. And the answer to them is found in this section and the answer to a great deal as well. So let's begin looking at it together. And the first thing that we're going to see is brilliant revelation. I'm going to begin by looking at the larger picture with you, but this section is a section of brilliant revelation. What people do with it, well, that's another issue. So first, let's look at the bigger picture together, letter A, at this portion in Matthew's gospel and what Matthew is signaling to us in verse 53, the flow in the gospel of Matthew. He says in verse 53, and it happened when Jesus finished these parables that he relocated from there. Now, that phrase, that exact Greek phrase, and it happened when Jesus finished, occurs five times in the Gospel of Matthew. And it shows us how Matthew structured his Gospel. Uh, we've seen this, but I, I remind you, turn back to Matthew chapter 7, 28, and look at the first time that it appears. Matthew 7, 28. And there we read, now it happened that when Jesus had finished these words, there it is, now it happened when Jesus had finished... Then Matthew says, these words, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Well, what, what words had he just finished at the end of Matthew 7? The words of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. 
So Matthew began with Jesus' genealogy and birth and beginning, chapter 1, 2, 3, 4. And then in chapters 5 through 7 was a discourse, the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew marks here in verse 28 that, the, that a discourse has just finished and he's going to shift back into narrative mode. So we have a sandwich here, the first of five sandwiches. Narrative and then the discourse and the end of it is sig- signaled by these words. Now it happened when Jesus had finished and then Matthew gets back to a narrative section. Turn to chapter 11, verse 1. That's the next occurrence. Matthew 11, 1, we read, Now it happened that when Jesus had finished, there's those words again, giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Well, what did that come at the end of? Chapter 10, his uh, instructing the missionaries he was sending out to preach the kingdom. And it's a chapter full of instruction to them, what to expect and what to do. Matthew signals that he's shifting gear at the start of chapter 11. And then we have chapters 11 and 12 showing cycles of rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the chapter we just studied, Matthew 13, which is the parables of the mysteries of the kingdom. And sure enough, as we just saw, at the end of that, we have Matthew 13, 53, as I translated it, and it happened when Jesus finished these parables that he relocated from there. Well, there's another signal. He's he's laying in another sandwich. He's just given a discourse, and now he's going to shift gear into more narrative, which leads into another discourse. So look at Matthew chapter, let's see, that was 13, 53. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. After chapter 18, teaching on forgiveness and life of the kingdom, we see Matthew 19, 1, Now it happened that when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee. Another mark from Matthew that he's just given a discourse, and he's about to shift back into narrative mode. And he does that. And then at the end of chapter 23, 24, 25, you turn to Matthew 26 and verse 1. And notice the way he changes it a little bit here. Now it happened that when Jesus had finished, what does he say? All these words. Now that notes to us that's the end of the discourses. And this has been a long one. The first one is quite a long one. The last one is quite a long one. The first one is chapters 5, 6, and 7. The last one is chapters 22, 23, and 24. The first one begins with blessings. The last one begins with woes. The first one talks about life in the kingdom. The second one talks about the coming of the kingdom. I say the second one. The last one talks about the coming of the kingdom. And then Matthew signals that it has ended. In fact, all of the discourses have ended by saying, now it happened when Jesus had finished all these words. So that tells us how Matthew has shaped his whole gospel. His gospel is five discourses, each of them sandwiched by narration. Narration, Sermon on the Mount. Narration, instruction of the missionaries. Narration, parables of the mysteries, and so forth on to the end here. So this tells us that we have just finished a sandwich. We just laid in the other, the second layer of the sandwich around chapter 13, the parables of the mysteries of the kingdom. And that's going to help us, as I'll show you in just a second, because what comes right before and right after chapter 13 is very instructive to us. So let's look at that. Turn to the end of Matthew chapter 12 with me, what comes before the chapter we just studied. 
And I'll remind you of, of how this ends. Now, Matthew 11 and 12, as I reminded you just a moment ago, are cycles of rejection, beginning with a puzzling person's puzzling reaction, as John the Baptist actually is, is, is a, a bit stymied at this point in Jesus' ministry, as he's languishing in prison, apparently. And then increasingly hostile reactions to Jesus, culminating in the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit committed by the leaders of Israel. And that results in their rejection, uh, their blasphemy. There's no coming back from blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And the kingdom is now going to be postponed. And that's what chapter 13 is about. The mysteries of the kingdom is about this previously unrevealed gap, not a gap, but section, time, between the first coming of Messiah his death and ascension, and his second coming to set up the earth, the, the kingdom of God on the earth. In between is the age we're in now. And in that age is the church age. That's within that age. But the age is the age of the mysteries uh, of the kingdom of heaven, which are taught in these parables that we've just finished studying. Now, look at the last part before this, starting with verse uh, 46. While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. He's speaking to disciples who want to learn the word of God. His, parent, his family wants to talk to him. They're standing outside where the disciples, they're sitting inside, circled around him listening to the word. But his family's not with them listening to the word. They're outside. They're not inside with him talking to them. He, they're outside wanting to talk to him. And so we go on. Uh, Jesus, well, someone says to him and, and underlines this point. Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. There it is again. Matthew really wants to reinforce this. Seeking to speak to you. Then again a second time. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Well, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Behold my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. So this shows a, a very telling point on many levels that the big thing is not blood relation to Jesus. Uh, whether on the small scale or the large scale. His own immediately, uh, immediate blood family at this point is not listening to him and is not positioned with the disciples. But what about his blood relatives in the nation of Israel? Well, they also by and large are not repenting and not submitting to his word. So who is going to be, who's going to make up the people of Jesus? Well, it's going to be whoever listens to his word and does the will of his father. And those are going to be Jews, yes. They're also going to be Gentiles. Blood is not going to be the issue. Uh, what, what they do with the Word of God will be the issue. Well, that, that point's made very strongly here, isn't it? And then chapter 13 teaches about the fact that this is going to be an age during which the Word of God will be sown, but there's going to be a lot of unbelief, a lot of disbelief, a lot of rejection. Four soils, only one takes it in and bears fruit. A wheat and darnel grow up together, a poisonous imitation of wheat growing side by side with the, with the wheat during this world. And, and some will see the great treasure that is Jesus and, and the kingdom of which he is king, but others will be just worthless fish. They won't see the worth of Jesus and they'll show their lack of worth and will be judged at the end. And then at the end, uh, those who do listen to the word will have great treasure to give away. That's what chapter 13 is about. So where's chapter 14, uh, sorry, where's 
chapter 13 going to end after that discourse? What comes right after the discourse? Well, that's what we're looking at today. And notice that we're right back with Jesus' family. We're back with Jesus' family referred to as the reason why these people reject him. They reject him because of his family, because he's just a plain person who all of them know. Obviously, we'll look at this a, a whole lot more closely. So we, we bracket the parables of the mysteries of the kingdom with two sections relating to Jesus' family. And they sort of, they form, listen, a bracket of unbelief around the parables of the mysteries of the kingdom. There's a bracket of unbelief. And we're going to see a great deal more about that. But the, the tone is, is the way Luke puts this. Luke quotes Jesus in Luke 8.21, specifically saying, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. But at the end of chapter 12 and at the end of chapter 13, we have people who don't hear the word of God and don't accept it. Well, that's the larger picture. Now we're going to take a tighter close-up, capital letter B, a tighter close-up at the section we're studying. Perhaps you notice that on your outline, the, the text is in a different shape than usual. Why did I do that? Do I think that's a poem? No, I don't think it's a poem, but it has a very definite shape to it, and the shape actually teaches us. Uh, we're going to go high-tech. I think probably preachers in seminaries today have a whole class in audiovisual uh, tricks, and I, I, they didn't have that. They were just barely beginning to use computers when I was in seminary. So uh, we're going to go high-tech right now. I'm going to ask for a slide to be put up that you'll see it's just what you've got in your outline, but it's got pretty colorful um, shapes and arrows and stuff on it. Ooh. So I've got a, a, a laser pointer here. It's kind of strange to have a laser pointer in my hand and no kitties to... Uh, to play with with it. But, but I'm going to show you the shape that you have there in your, uh, the way it's typeset, if you will, in your outline. Now, so verse 53 and verse 58 are the beginning and end of the bracket. And notice when Jesus finished these parables, he relocated from there. And in the last we have, he did not do many acts of power there on account of their unbelief. Well, it's easy to see that their answers and the lesson of it comes when we compare these two, these parables and unbelief. Well, Matthew could have just said when he finished teaching, but he emphatically said when he finished these parables. Why does he say that? Because he wants us to remember the lesson of these parables. And what is that? It's that the word of God is going to be preached, but not all will respond. Of four soils, once again, only one accepts it and bears fruit. And they're wheat and tares. They look just like each other. But the darnel, the tares, are poisonous. And they will be plucked up at the end of the age. And the kingdom, yes, it will grow in its reach and in its, its uh, height. But uh, the outreach of the word. But only some will see that treasure and sell all to get it. Others will see no worth in it at all. And, and they are the worthless. So these parables teach that. He goes to another location, but even though he's in another location, the same thing shows as before. Both places, unbelief. The parables were told because of the unbelief of the nation of Israel and the, and the leaders who should have led in accepting him and, 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 and embracing him as Messiah, yet they, they lead in unbelief. And that's where the nation goes. So that brackets this section, you see. Now here's another little clue. He came into his hometown and at the answering section, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. 
Those are the only two occurrences of that word in Matthew's Gospel. And that's how he's signaling to us that this is a structure about Jesus' hometown, his, his patria, his, you could say fatherland or his family home. He goes back to Nazareth. You might think he'd be welcomed there. And yet, well, what we're going to see is he's not. So he came into his own hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue. He's teaching them the Word of God, just as he said. This is an age of doing that. But he goes to another place, and it's going to be the same reaction he's had in previous places. Uh, He begins teaching them in their synagogue, and notice they were astonished. Now that astonishment, you might think, well, that's great. They're seeing his, his manifestation of the power of God in him. He, he's showing the presence of the kingdom of God in him. He's showing who he are. And if they're astonished, well, that's fantastic. That could be opening their minds to considering the truth of Jesus and embracing it. But no, we see that their astonishment ends up in them getting tripped over him. They're getting tripped up over him. Their astonishment does not lead to humbling themselves, repenting, and believing. It leads to them rejecting. It's too astonishing. It just doesn't fit. Uh, they, they, they have absolutely certain reasons why they must reject this man, as we'll see in just a moment. So this statement, so they're astonished and we're saying, leads the way to five rapid-fire questions. Five questions, and they're structured too. There's an opening and a closing section with three in the middle. There's Matthew's three again. And notice, whence and whence. So that's the opening and closing section. They're asking a question. They're asking, where did this come from? They're asking for the source of it. Whence does this man have this wisdom and the acts of power? Acts of power being the miracles that they knew, knew he was doing and some of which he did in their area. And then they say all these things, meaning the wisdom and the acts of power. Where does he get these things from? And you'd think, well, those are really good questions. And in themselves, yeah, they're really good questions, except the three middle questions are all put together. And why do I put them together? Is this not, is not, are they not? What kind of answer does that uh, expect when you say, isn't this something, what do you expect to hear? Yes, it is something. So in other words, they say, is this not the son of the craftsman? And they expect the answer, yes. Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And they expect to be told? Yes. And his sisters, are they not all with us? And they expect to hear? Yes. Now, see, these are things that they absolutely know. And knowing that, they believe that they know all they need to know. So this is, look at how Matthew has structured this. This is the center of it. And that's why when I do things like this, it's not for prettiness or any other reason except to show you the clues Matthew's given us uh, to understand what, what the Spirit of God has led him to say to us. So the heart of it I'm going to show you in a few moments is in these. That is what really explains both sides of it. And then we go on to <clears throat> the fact that they get tripped up in his hometown and don't give him honor. All right, I think that's all I need to show you from that, and then we'll teach our way through it. You can turn that off, please. Thank you very much. So, my first use of uh, tricky AV stuff. I, I see no injuries. We've suffered no losses. Perhaps I'll do it again sometime. But I've got to rest up from this one first. So now let's look more closely, Roman numeral two. Despite Christ's brilliant revelation, because who better to teach 
and who with such power to do acts of power. It's brilliant revelation. So how do they respond to this brilliant revelation? We see blinding folly, Roman numeral 2, blinding folly in verses 54b through 56. And that's the heart where these questions are asked. He goes into their synagogues and he teaches in Nazareth in his hometown. And they ask questions. And the, the framing questions, the first and the fifth question, the first and the last, they're good questions as far as they go. Roman number, uh, sorry, capital letter A, it's framed by good questions. They were saying, whence does this man have this wisdom and the acts of power? And then verse 56 Whence, therefore, does this man have all these things? Well, these are very good questions. They recognize a wisdom such as they'd not heard before. Remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he's teaching us with power, with authority, not like our scribes. He's teaching us, uh, teaching the Word of God with freshness and with authority. And he doesn't just talk, he does. He's able to heal the sick. He's able to do various kinds of miracles. But the question is, well, where does he... Where does he get these things from? Now, that could be a really good question. And conversions start with asking good questions, wondering things, reopening things. Is that what they're doing? Because formally it sounds like it. The answers to those questions would be, would be saving and redemptive answers. Yeah, I'd love to tell you where Jesus gets his wisdom. I'd love to tell you where Jesus gets this power. It looks like it's a good start, except next we see in the middle that these good-sounding questions are fouled by foolish assumptions. They are fouled by foolish assumptions. F-O-U-L-E-D. They're messed up. They're twisted. They're defeated by foolish assumptions. Now, if you can ask a great question, but if you're coming from the wrong place, you won't come up with the right answer. What is truth? Well, isn't that a great question? Who asked that question? Pilate asked that question. Did he want to know? No. <laughs> but it was a great question. They asked great questions. Well, how do you tell what's in their heart? Now, here's an interesting thing. Both of those sections I showed you, the end of 12 and the end of 13, stress saying a lot. That fa Jesus' family was saying this, and this is what they're saying. What did Jesus say about words in, in Matthew 12? What did he say about what we say? What does that do? It shows what's in our heart and will be judged by them. Well, here's their words, and they show us what's in their heart. Each of them expects the answer, yes. Now, let me talk about what these mean first, and then let me talk about what they mean, what they reveal. Uh, first of all, you see the first question is, is this not the son of the craftsman? And you may have been puzzled right there why I say craftsman. Carpenter is the traditional uh, translation. Well, it is the traditional translation, but there's very good reason to understand that it doesn't mean a carpenter. It's a broader word. The word tecton is a broader word um, used to translate a, a Hebrew word that is a broader word that speaks of someone who works not just in wood, but also in stone and also in metal, like Bezalel in, in Exodus who fashions the tabernacle who could work in precious stones and in metal and in carving wood. Not just one field. And if you reflect on it, that makes sense, doesn't it? Because what's there not a lot of in this area of the world 
and what is there a lot of in this area of the world? Not a lot of, not a lot of wood, lots of rocks. So for a person to be a builder and a craftsman, he, he can't just be skilled in one material. And so uh, this is probably describing the fact that Joseph was skilled in a number of things. He was a craftsman. We almost might use the word contractor, but craftsman's a, a better word. Somebody who's able to fashion and build and build farming implements and, and build buildings and so forth. Quite a, a variety of things uh, Jesus father, as they say. He's the son of the craftsman. And the second question is, is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And it's very interesting when you look uh, at the names that were popular at that space of time in that area, these are some of the most popular names. Um, that's something that's hard to fake if you're faking, particularly if you're not a historian, you're trying to fake something set in a period and you put in some names that are popular in your time, but not 200 years ago, not 100 years ago. Well, these are actually names that were popular names for men in that day. And these are his, his, uh, his brothers, uh, half-brothers, as we know, James uh, and Judas, who wrote uh, letters of the New Testament uh, by the same name. But, and his mother's called Mary. And then the third question, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Now, there's a little nuance there in the way they say, are they not all with us? Meaning, they're among us. They're, they're, they're in our number. They're on our level. In other words, what are they saying? These aren't special people. They say the carpenter, Nazareth, maybe had a population of 1,600 people. Um, there are smaller towns in Texas, but that's a pretty small one. And he was known as the carpenter. Interestingly, Joseph's not here. He's spoken of, but he's not present. You don't see Joseph really anywhere after Jesus is 12. So a lot of speculation. The fact is we don't know what happened to him. Likely died, but we don't know for certain. Uh, but he's not on the scene. But, but they know whose son they think Jesus is. They think he's the son of the craftsman. They know his, his mother and his brothers. And the third question, his sisters, they're, they're with us. They're, they're on our level. So he's acting like he's someone who's way on a whole different level. He's got wisdom that's got a whole different level. He's speaking with an authority that is next level. And these powers, they're totally other level. But his family's just us. They're just folks. We know every one of them. We know all of them. His sisters, I mean, they, they mingle with our sisters. They're no different. They're not, they're not particularly high class or anything special. And here's the thing. Let's look again. They think that in knowing these, and no, no, are all these statements true? As far as they go, yeah, they are true. Uh, they know these people, and he is the legal son of, of Joseph. And, um, and they know all the brothers and sisters. And, and just a quick note on that, uh, again, to re rescore, there's an invented fantasy that uh, slanders Mary as having married Joseph but remained a virgin, which would have been to sin against him, actually. And um, these aren't really Jesus' half-brothers and sisters by Mary. Well, that's not, there's no reason, no biblical reason to think these, that after Jesus was born to Mary, then uh, Joseph and Mary had normal relations and they had kids like married couple generally do. So these are Jesus' half-brothers uh, and sisters. So um, let's revisit this then and look at it a little more closely. Let's take the first one. Where do they start off? And, and think about this with me. The first question is what? What's, what's the first question that they ask expecting the answer yes? Is this not the son of the craftsman? 
Well, what if you'd asked Joseph that? If you'd said, is this your son? What would Joseph have said? Well, no. Strictly, no. I, he's my adopted son, but, but no, he's not my son. How do you know that? Well, why was he going to divorce Mary? He was going to marry Mary, and, and she was pregnant, and he knew one thing for certain. What was that? One his son. So they actually don't start off right, do they? Their first assumption isn't really the whole story. It's true that he's Joseph's legal son, and it's true that he's Mary's biological son, but there's something they're missing. But they don't think so. They think they know everything. They know all about Jesus that they need to know. And so they start off here, and they start off wrong. They start off with a part of the truth, and they think they've got the whole truth. I can't tell you how important that is. Important that is to understanding this section, and important that is to understanding why we're all in the mess we're in, and why unbelievers are unbelievers. They know something that they're sure is not just true, but all the truth. Knowing this, they think they know everything they need to know, about Jesus. And, and what's likely to happen if you start off wrong? You're likely to end up wrong. If I want to go to Dallas and I head that way, odds are, well, I mean, you know, if I'm flying and I have lots of fuel, I guess eventually I'll end up in Dallas, but that's the wrong way to go. So they started off wrong about Jesus. Assuming they knew the whole story, they only knew part of the story. And his mother and brothers and sisters with us. Again, that's, that's true as far as it goes. But again, it doesn't go far enough. Yet they assume that's all they need to know. Because they assume that being in that family, Jesus is just like his mother and his brother and, and his sisters. But Jesus isn't just like. Yes, he's just as human as they are. But that's not the whole story about who Jesus is, is it? And so I've said before, I have no trouble with the statement, Jesus is a man. Jesus is a man. Where does error come in if you say Jesus is just a man or only a man? Ah, now there's the trouble. And that's their trouble. And their damning trouble is they are sure that's all the truth. And they're not open to know anything else. So they knew truths. They knew true things about Jesus, but not the essential foundational things about Jesus. And they assumed that what they knew was all they needed to know. And so because of that conceit, based on their superficial thinking, well, superficiality breeds conceit. And they were proudly, stubbornly sure that they knew the whole story. Therefore, they didn't need to even consider the rest of the story. And you want to ask me why people reject Jesus today? And I'd say that's really probably the biggest answer. Spiritually, the reason is because they're dead in trespasses and sins. But in the way that they think, the way they think, it's because they know some things, and knowing some things, they're sure they know all things. And they have unwarranted confidence in that. I mean, that's the case of atheism. Here's an illustration I really like. It, it has the, uh, it's one you have to think about. It, it may hit you on the way home, maybe, if you don't get it right off, or if I don't tell it really well. But I have a friend, uh, Doug Wilson, who used this in a debate with an unbeliever, and it's really a great illustration. <clears throat> Two men standing together and looking at a distant tree, and the one asks his friend, tell me what you see. 
And his friend says, well, I, I see uh, a tree that, that, that God created. I see uh, it's got uh, green, and I see some brown. It looks like it's pretty tall. You know, the guy says, fine, okay, come with me. And so he walks with him and walks and walks and walks. And now they're standing just 10 feet from the tree. And he says, tell me what you see now. And he says, well, now I see it a lot more clearly. I see the shape of the leaves and their size. I see the kind of branches that there are. I actually see the beginning of fruit. I can tell this is an apple tree. I see the texture and the exact shade of the trunk. And I can even see the beginnings of some of the root system. And the other man turns triumphantly to him and says, ha, then where's your God now? Okay, well, wait, what does that have to do with anything? Well, because he's thinking now that he has a lot more details and a lot more fact, he won't see this as a created tree. Because now he sees a whole lot more about it. And that's what science has done. 500 years ago, you asked somebody maybe how weather works, how gravity works, how all sorts of things work, and they would say, well, God holds things to the planet, and God changes the seasons, and God does this and that and the other thing, you know, because God is Lord over creation. Oh, but now we know a lot more about weather and a lot more about the body. Now we can see uh, uh, atoms and molecules, and we know about germs and bacteria, and we know so much more than we did 500 years ago, leading many people to say, well, see, we have no use for God now because we're standing so close to the tree and see, mo- see so many more things. But we don't know anything more than we... We know a lot of more things, but who makes weather work? Who made the laws of nature? Who made us? Who set up the body? Who maintains? Who keeps atoms together in their formation and molecules together in their formation? And why? And what does it mean? We don't know any of those things just because we know more facts and data. Well, they know, they know these things about Jesus and they think they know everything about Jesus now. They don't know everything about Jesus. <laughs> they know something true about Jesus that's very important. They know he's a human being. Check. Very important. The whole story... Not even close. And that's where they go wrong. You see, that's where they go wrong. False assumptions coupled with stubbornness and pride kills. And damns. I'll say that again. False assumptions coupled with stubbornness and pride kills and damns. And that's exactly what you see going on here. False assumptions coupled with stubbornness and pride Now, let's go back to these questions and speak to them again, because they're good questions. So let's us use them and get more out of them. Whence does this man have this wisdom and the acts of power? Will you tell me where does he get this wisdom and these acts of power from? From God his Father, because who's he? He's the Son of God. He's God the Son. He's God incarnate. He's the Logos who was in the beginning with God and was God and who became flesh and dwelt among us. But still the Logos, and still God, and still showing the wisdom of God, and still showing the power of God. It's a great question if they'd only been open to the answer, but what would that have taken? What would that have taken? Humility. Humility. The willingness to say, okay, I just really don't know everything, so why don't I shut up and listen? You tell me who you are. He's been telling them who he is. Well, now I'm going to shut up and listen to who you tell me. But 
they wouldn't do that. They were too busy talking and talking about what they knew to listen to what they did not know. You see? So, where did he get these things from? He got them from God his Father. And they were the presence of the kingdom of God in him, which their nation was rejecting and still rejects to this day. But great truth, if only you'd listen to the answer. So, because superficiality breeds conceit, because superficiality breeds conceit, in their case, it led to a tragic outcome. Roman numeral 3. It led to a tragic outcome. Verses 57 through 58. And they were getting tripped up over him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his house. And he did not do many acts of power there on account of their unbelief. What do we see here in this tragic outcome? First, we see offensive Jesus. Capital letter A, offensive Jesus. O-F-F-E-N-S-I-V-E, offensive Jesus. You say, oh, pastor, you can't mean to say it that way. Well, let's take a look at verse 57a. And we're reading my translation. And they were getting tripped up. What are the next two words? Over him. Now, that's what Matthew says. Not, not me, not some liberal commentator. He says that what was tripping them up was Jesus. What? what? Okay, we've got to look at this. What is he saying? How were they getting now tripped up is the, the Greek word skandal, verb skandalizomai. We get scandal from it, but it doesn't mean scandal exactly the way we use the word, so that doesn't really help. It's something that tripped a trap. A, a scandalone is something that tripped a trap. And so to be scandalized is to be tripped up. And in this context, it means they were tilting off into unbelief. They were, they were tripping over Jesus and falling into unbelief over Jesus, Matthew's saying. So we have to ask the question, what was offensive about Jesus to them? What, 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 what was it that they tripped over? Well, they tripped over his claims about himself and who he said he was. That he said he was the one who came to fulfill the law and the prophets. That he said he was greater than the temple. He was greater than Saul. Greater than the temple. You know, you still should just kind of shake when you hear that. But Jesus said he was greater than the temple, which was the representation of the presence of God. And he's saying, I'm greater than that. And I'm one you should love more than you love your mother or father or your children, he says. And I'm, I'm one who is a treasure for which you should be willing to part with everything else so you can have me. And I'm one you should come to and I will give you rest. And I'm one who, if you're to know God, it's got to be because I choose to reveal him to you. If you've read Matthew closely, you're realizing, I'm just rephrasing things earlier from the Gospel of Matthew. This is what Jesus said about him. And they just thought, well, wait a minute. He's just someone like us. We know he's just like us. We know that. We know his father, his mother, his brothers and sisters. We know everything about him. How can he say this? Can't be true. Well, I'd put it this way. One of two things can't be true. That they know everything about him and it's just that he's just like them. Or he's not just like them. Those things can't both be true. One of them is untrue. And they're sure this one's true. And that's why they tripped up. Because it wasn't. They thought they knew everything and they didn't. (laughs) They didn't know the most important thing. A very important thing without which the other is not really perfectly well understood. 
his claims about himself and his claims about them that they need to believe in him, that they need to know him to know God, that they need to hear his teaching to understand the word of God, and, and, and that they're sinners, that they're sinners who need to repent. Remember, this is something he said to everybody, not just some people. And so he told them to repent. Well, where does this, where does this hometown boy get off telling us to repent? He's just like us. He's just one of us. And yet, no, that's where they went wrong. So what he said about himself, what he said about them, that he said that he was God incarnate and they needed to know him, they needed to repent of their sins and follow him. Oh, no, 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 no. That didn't fit their worldview at all. And you can't have two gods and they reject Jesus. Why was Jesus effect offensive? We, we talked about what was offensive about him, but why then was he offensive? You can see easily it's because he clashed with their assumptions. Because what he says can't be true and what they assume can't be true at the same time. And in that clash, they're going to stand with what they think. And that's why they were offended. That's why it offended them. Because what they were sure was right couldn't be right if he was right. So he's got to be wrong. Because I can't be. <laughs> I can't be. So it's got to be Jesus. They're just a little more bald about it than some people living today when they come to the same place. So that's why Jesus was offensive. And now I'm going to come back to the question, then why is Jesus offensive today? Why do people reject Jesus today? And I'm going to say, same reason. Same exact reason. He clashes with our assumptions. What do we assume fundamentally? And you could say probably all people. You could certainly say all Americans. You could definitely say all Texans. We assume that we are fit, that we are our own judges, that we will determine what's right and wrong, and we're not only is it our right, but we're right to do it. We're capable of it. We can tell what's good and bad. We can tell what's right and wrong. Nobody tells us what to think. Nobody. And that's going to include Jesus because he says that we do need him to tell us what to think. We say, no, no, no. I know that I don't. Well, there's a clash then. That Jesus is very offensive. The Jesus who says, I am, and you need me. That Jesus is very offensive to our pride. That's why he is offensive. So what do we learn here? Come back to the questions that we started off with. Why are so many young people leaving churches, white people, black people, middle class, Gen X, millennials, whatever the bracket is, why are they, so many of them leaving church? Well, I'll tell you why. If it's a church that is preaching Jesus, they're leaving church because they hate Jesus. That's why. They're leaving church because he offends them. They're offended by Jesus. That they, if, if they are having to them, if they're having preached to them actual Jesus, the real Jesus who lives and saves, the Jesus who is King of kings and Lord of lords, well and who is Lord, therefore, over their sexuality and over their political ideas and over their views of themselves and the world and priorities and values, and he's Lord of all that, that's offensive. They're leaving because they hate him. That's why. So we're going to get him back by changing that? Not if we still want to be a church of Christ. Not if we still want to be faithful to what God's called us to do. Not if we want to preach a Jesus who saves. See, now there's the thing. If you work Jesus over to where he's not offensive, 
then I've got to tell you something with absolute certainty and, and truth, that the Jesus who isn't offensive doesn't save either. The Jesus who doesn't offend people doesn't save people either. Why? Because he never existed. Because he's a figment. He's an idol. He's someone made up by our conceit because of our superficial thinking. Never existed, but the Jesus who did exist is an offensive Jesus. These people were offended, Matthew says, over him because of who he was, because they wouldn't repent, because of their superficial conceit. So it's not, uh, the problem is not Jesus, it's them. When somebody hears Jesus truly preached and turns away, the problem is not that person, it's the one who turns away. And the problem is certainly not Jesus, it's the person who turns away. So we've got to preach Jesus because the only Jesus who saves is the Jesus who also offends. And if we preach an inoffensive Jesus, we're preaching a non-saving Jesus, uh, a fictional Jesus. So when does Jesus become inoffensive to a person? Because many of you, perhaps you're thinking, well, he's not offensive to me. He's Lord to me. How did that happen? Well, it happened by the grace of God. It happens like Jesus said back in chapter 11. When God chooses to open the eyes of a person, when God the Holy Spirit comes and convicts of sin and glorifies Christ and and breathes life into that person's heart so that he can repent and believe now. In other words, it's an act of God. You love Jesus. You want Jesus to be your Lord. You want Jesus to be your everything. You're gladly turning from things, all things, so that you might know Jesus and the power of His right. How did that happen? That's the sovereign grace of God in your life. That's when, it, when Jesus becomes inoffensive and altogether lovely and beyond all price. So, offensive Jesus. Letter B, dishonored Jesus. Jesus' response to this, as always, is not to say, what did I do wrong? This is something you never see Jesus saying. What did I do wrong? I'm so sorry. Please come back. You never see Jesus saying that. What does Jesus say? A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his house. And that's him saying that this is just what is to be expected. He's not without honor except in his hometown and in his house. Now, here's an interesting thing. This word without honor. This word without honor was used in the Greek translation of a passage that is very, very important right here. Turn with me to Isaiah 53 with this story in mind that we're reading right now. Go back with me 700 years before this incident and turn to Isaiah 53. And in their Bibles that they had heard read were these words, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected, I'm sorry, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Now here's a, it's interesting all by itself, but let me add you a a little something. In the Greek translation of this that they would have known in Jesus' day, the word despised in verse three 
both times is translated by the same word Jesus uses when he says a prophet is not without honor. Atimos and the, and the verb form of that he's used. So you could say in the Greek translation, he was without honor. We dishonored him. That's what the Greek text said. And so Jesus is alluding to that. He's poking them a little bit that they are fulfilling Scripture on the wrong side of it when they think nothing of Jesus and despise Him because of His humble roots, which if they had... And Jesus, this is... I'm singing Jesus' tune here. That's where I learned it. If they'd just known their Scripture, they would have seen it straight. Scripture says that He would not be of magnificent form or appearance or, or, or um, uh, fancy trappings like a human celebrity. And that's just what they're saying is why they're not believing him. And that's just what prophecy says would mark the Messiah of God. And so they dishonor him. Well, see, that's the way human viewpoint looks at Jesus. Human viewpoint has to fit Jesus into our dimensions. We have to make him into a philosopher, a free love preacher, or just a guru or a rabbi or a sage or something. And he defies all of that. We need to see Jesus the way God sees Jesus. If they'd read that chapter, they would have seen Jesus as God sees him. That he is, uh, going back to where it starts in 52.13, he's God's servant. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, but not until after his people reject him and put him to death. Or other passages of Scripture. Um, you think of the prediction, or rather I should say the commentary on this is in John chapter 1, verse 10. Isn't this just what we're reading here where John writes in John 1.10, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. And then what does John say? He came to what was His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. That's just what we're reading here. And then John says, But as many as did receive Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. We need to receive Him as God sees Him. Acts 5.30 and 31 gives us one little peek at that. Acts 5.30 and 31. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you put to death by hanging him on a tree. This one God exalted to his right hand as a leader and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. That's how God sees Jesus. Or the well-known words of Philippians 2 verses 8 through 11. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's how God sees Jesus. That's how we need to see Jesus. He was despised, despised and dishonored, but God glorified him and so must we fall before him and glorify him. Thirdly, we see disbelieved Jesus in verse 58. Disbelieved Jesus. And he did not do many acts of power there on account of their unbelief. Obviously, it wasn't that he lacked the power to do these. The problem wasn't him. The problem was them. In this case, it clearly is a, it's not me, it's you case between Jesus and them because of their unbelief. 
So he did not flatter, he did not reward their lack of faith with more acts of power, with more acts of God's great strength. Um, Unbelief, I would note, is different than little belief. He had faulted his disciples as, as being people of little faith. But little faith is not the same as no faith. And uh, little faith is a problem, but no faith is a death sentence. And this is what they had. They had no faith. Rejecting Christ for who he was marked them as having nothing God would see as faith. And, and reflect on that. Isn't that remarkable? What that tells us then is there would have been more shows of God's strength and power if they'd simply believed in Jesus. But that region had people who remained sick, remained dead, and so forth, simply because they did not believe in Jesus. They didn't have faith. Lack of faith is always a problem. I mean, it's not the same as when a Christian's faith is weak, but it's, it's always the case that, that, having, that the less faith we have, the less we will see of God's grace and mercy, even as Christians. Lack of faith is never a good thing. And, and Christians who bemoan, why aren't they happier? Why aren't they more fruitful? Why don't they feel closer to God? Would do well to look at how robust is your faith in the Word of God, because very often it's the same thing. But that's not the exact thing we're looking at here. We're looking at people who flat out rejected who Jesus was. And so he did not do many acts of power. Some, he laid his hands on a few sick, Mark tell us, but, tells us, but um, not many because of their unbelief. So, we see it then, superficiality breeds conceit. What superficiality? The fact that they knew a few surface truths about Jesus, put them, put them together wrong, assumed they knew everything, and then stubbornly would not learn and would not change their minds. Superficiality breeds conceit. It did then, it does now. And the problem wasn't what they knew, because they knew some true things, it's what they thought they knew. They're only partly right about what they thought they knew. That's the first problem. It's what they thought they knew, and it's how much they thought they knew. They didn't know it exactly right, but they thought they knew everything, and superficiality bred conceit in that they were unwilling to learn anymore because they knew everything they needed to. Pride assured them that they knew everything, Pride assured them that they didn't need to rethink anything. Pride would take them right to hell, smiling smugly all the way. And that's what pride does today. And I wonder if any here has been in the grips of such pride. You've thought things about Jesus that are not true and about yourself that are not true, but you won't let them go because pride won't let you let them go. But I just remind all of us what Jesus says is the meaning of discipleship and the shape and the start of discipleship. What's the first thing Jesus says? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And that's where we humble ourselves before him and go on our knees before him and say, I don't know things as I should. You show me the truth. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's what discipleship is. It's turning my back on my self-rule and my self-pride and submitting myself to the Lordship of Christ, trusting Him, and He saves us by grace alone. Let us pray. 
Father, thank you for these truths that are in this section, powerful truths. We pray that they will pierce our hearts and grip us. I pray earnestly, Father, for those who've come in not saved, maybe their spouse is saved, their parents are saved, their friends are saved, but they've heard of Jesus and not yet bowed the knee. Oh, Father, do a work of grace in that heart and draw that person to humble himself before you, look to Jesus alone, cry out to you to be saved, and know that wonderful salvation that you give for free to all who call on your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.